Amen. Would you stand with me please once more this morning? We want to look to the Gospel of Mark. Our text today is our key verse. If you've been coming to Victory for a while, you probably have this one etched in your memory by now, and that's the reason we do it every week. The key verse is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Find one of these screens and read with me, please. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you this morning for the privilege of being able to stand in your presence. It's not by our own righteousness or our merit. That's filthy rags. But God, we thank you that it's by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we stand accepted in the beloved. Thank you today that it's because of all that you are, Jesus, you died for us, you were buried for us, and you were raised again for us. We celebrate that today. Get in the middle of this, Lord. I need you. Purify my heart. Clean my hands. Lord, I thank you this morning that apart from you, I know that I can't do anything, but I'm so grateful that I'm not apart from you and that with you I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Open our hearts. Open our eyes. Open our ears. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. In the presence of the Lord, we're doing a message today called When Tradition Becomes a Bad Word. When Tradition Becomes a Bad Word. Last week, uh, I just want to throw out some props to Pastor Haley. Great job. And all of the workers who did everything to make that weekend a great success. Our back-to-school bash was amazing. We lined the whole platform up here with... Uh, new backpacks that were filled with school supplies for children that otherwise might not have been able to afford them. And they were delivered this week to the school, two schools that Haley had made an agreement with, and everybody was very excited to be able to receive those gifts. So give yourselves a hand this morning. Amen? We've, we were out of the pulpit last week, actually out of town in Nashville, getting Abby set up in her dorm room at Belmont University. Had a great weekend, extremely busy weekend. We said a tearful goodbye Sunday afternoon and have been dealing with a very quiet house all week long. And uh, just want to say thank you so much. Some of you texted and some of you f made phone calls to Abby this week. Uh, a little bit homesick and struggling a little bit, doing much better now. Very excited about school. And I just want to say thank you for loving us, for praying for us um, as the lead pastors of the church and for our family. I, I want to go back and give you a real quick about 45-second testimony. I told you a couple of Sundays ago, actually probably three or four back, very tearfully that I had been struggling with extreme excruciating pain with back problems, and I'd been to the chiropractor almost 10 times at that point and was very heavily medicated to all with over-the-counter stuff with Aleve and, and uh, Tylenol and ibuprofen and all these different kinds of things, just basically kind of every two hours putting something different in, trying to be able to manage the pain just to get some work done. And finally, after weeks of enduring that and praying and doing the whole uh, chiropractic regimen and trying to you know stretch and all that stuff, I just finally said, you know what, I've got to get this church to pray for me because I've been struggling in my own strength and I can't do it. And I just want to give God glory because after weeks of doing everything I knew what to do, the one Sunday that I asked you to pray, I, I, cannot even, I don't even have words to tell you how different I felt when I woke up Monday morning after I know a bunch of you prayed for me. <laughs> Literally, I felt better that Monday morning than I had in months. And guys, if this is real, 
You just have to believe me. When I woke up Tuesday, it had doubled and it was even better than it was. So I've been pain-free for weeks now and it all happened instantly. So don't let anybody tell you that God doesn't heal. Because I've been struggling, struggling desperately and was just in a bad place. And so I want to say thank you for praying for me, for loving us. Uh, we, we've had some amazing times in the Word in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is an exciting, very action-packed record of the Gospel of Jesus' life and times and his ministry, his teaching, his actions. It's the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter as told to his disciple John Mark, which we know as the writer of the Gospel of St. Mark in the Scripture. Uh, this morning as we look at this, I, have, uh, I want to open up to chapter 7. Uh, Alex did an amazing job a few weeks back preaching to us how Jesus took the little boy's happy meal, his little five loaves and two fish, and fed, the scripture says fed 5,000, but that was 5,000 men. And we see that literally he fed up to 15, between 15 and 20,000 people that day. Um, we, we've preached Jesus walking on the water. We've preached him uh, on an amazing healing campaign in Gennesaret, which was one of the northern regions around the Sea of Galilee up in the northern part of Israel. And so amazing things are happening. Deaf ears are being unstopped. Blind eyes are opening. The dead are being raised. The gospel is being preached. Demonized people are being set free. Jesus is doing some amazing stuff. And all of a sudden we open up to chapter 7 and it's very much opposite. It is in-your-face opposition. It is... Uh, Jesus is standing behind the counter and he's, he's manning the complaint department. And it's a group of hyper-religious legalists that are known among the Jews as the Pharisees. They were a sect that were extremely particular about keeping every jot and tittle of the law of God. And that doesn't sound bad. I mean, we do want to obey the law of God. But these guys had taken it to an absolute extreme, and you're going to see that in this passage of Scripture. Now, it's an extensive passage. The first 13 verses deal with what Jesus identifies and the, the Pharisees themselves refer to as the tradition of the elders. Everybody say tradition of the elders. Okay, that's not a bad thing. But today we're going to talk about when tradition can become a bad word. So they, they open up and they talk about what can defile a person. Jesus basically says, you guys have got this all wrong. And from 14 through 23, he identifies really what the source of the pollution is. Our spiritual pollution, the defilement in our lives, comes from a bad heart. We're going to be talking about that this morning. So uh, you don't have to read out loud. Just follow along with me as I read from Mark 7. We're going to get 23 verses as quickly as possible. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw, everybody say saw, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. Say the word defiled. And that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Say those last words, tradition of the elders. Okay, that's important. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, it doesn't sound too bad so far. How many know it's good to be clean? All right. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to, say those next words again, the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
ceremonially unclean, in other words. Okay? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, Jesus now, and if you're reading this in your written Bible, it would be in red letters, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Say those last three words, tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your what? Tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is gift. Okay, they say gift. In other words, what I owe you, I'm actually going to give it to God. Okay, that is given to God. So it sort of lets me off the hook. If I, what I really should be giving to you is my parents to honor you, helping you, I'm going to give that to God, then it lets me off the hook and I don't actually have to keep the commandment because I've got this new tradition that I've replaced the commandment with, okay? So he says, whatever you would have gained from me is korban or gift that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. This next verse scares me. Thus making void. Read those first three words right there. Say it with me. Thus making void. What does to make void mean? To render powerless? To, to annul something? To, to, to remove the force of something? To take it out, as somebody said just then? But look what they're rendering void, what they're making void. This scares me. Thus making void the what? The Word of God. So you're telling me that there is the possibility that there can be something that actually would be more powerful than the Word of God? Something that can make the Word of God powerless? I mean, you know, you write a check and you sign your name to it and then you decide you're not going to let payment go on that check. So what do you write across that check? Now, can you get anything from that when it has the word void on it? No, it's no good. Void. Okay, it's just been zeroed out. It's the two sides of the equation and you've got a seven on one side and you've just took a, taken a negative seven from it. It becomes a zero. Okay, so thus making void the Word of God by your what? There it is. It's by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. You, the Scripture says you make of no, none effect the Word of God by your tradition. Wow. Verse 14, Jesus asked, answers the question now, what really does defile a person? And He called the people to Him again and said to Him, Hear me, all of you, and understand... There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? I love the message here because it says, are you just willfully stupid? <laughs> I wanted to use that one up here, but I, I was afraid it might offend a couple of people. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is just keeping it real, man. He is not playing. He just said, do you just want to be stupid? For real? You don't get this? 
And you know what? I'm so glad that that kind of stuff is in the Bible because if Jesus would look at his own disciples and go, are you just willfully stupid? And the answer is, yeah. Then thank God if he loves them, then somebody like me even has a chance. Come on, put your hands together. Look at your neighbor and say, even you. <laughs> thank God we've got a chance if the disciples that are with him don't have understanding. And Jesus says, are you just willfully stupid? I love it. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Now, we're going all digestive system here and we're not going to get crass. But I mean, it, the food goes in, it's assimilated, it works through your intestines. And the, the message translation says, then finally it's flushed. Okay, we know what that means. We don't need to explain any Greek words here. Okay, we all got it. But this is what's happening. Jesus says, what you eat is not what messes you up. And basically by saying that, the, there is a parenthetical expression that's added, thus he declared all foods clean. Now how many of you know you can actually head over to Central Barbecue and get you some baby back, baby back, baby back. I want my baby back. Where, that's Chili's. Chili's baby back. Wherever it is. You can do your baby backs, you can have your fried catfish, you can do your shrimp boil. All those things that are forbidden in the Old Testament law, it's okay to eat them now. It's not a sin issue anymore, but let me just say this to you. Since then, even though we know it's not a sin and we can receive all things sanctified by the Word of God through prayer is what the, the, the book of Timothy says, Paul wrote, We've since then proven nutritionally, scientifically, health-wise, if you take advantage and eat too many of the things that the Scripture in the Old Testament did forbid, it's not going to be a sin to you, but it can have a negative health effect. You can eat too much of a good thing, and it can be not good for you. Okay? I, I don't know if it does it you this way, but man, I love my Easter ham. But if I eat too much ham, my hands will swell. I can't even get my rings off. I mean, I've got these giant rib separators anyway. You know, that's what... When I would tickle my children, Dawn would go, don't, don't, don't. You're hurting people. That's not even, there's no tickling with those things. <laughs> and, 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 you know, those, those things that we enjoy, we can certainly be free to enjoy them in moderation. But we can't just go cut loose now and not expect some kind of a negative health effect. But it's no longer a sin. Everybody say it's not a sin. Okay, now eating too much of it is, but the actual meat or the item is no longer. Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Jesus is giving us the source of the pollution. The spiritual defilement is right here. He says, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, I'm sorry, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Lord, we just ask you today to bless the reading of your word. Help me today with this passage to do what you want your people to hear and what you want me to say in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so we're, we're grabbing hold of a difficult passage of scripture. Great things have been happening. Man, the campaign is rolling. People are telling about it. Jesus doesn't even need a marketing campaign. They don't even need your invited card cards because everybody's talking about what Jesus is doing, how the gospel is transforming lives. Religion is all about advice. It is self-help for self-improvement. It's what you, 
can do, you should or you shouldn't do. But what Jesus is preaching is not religious advice. It is the gospel. The gospel is good news. News is not advice. News is something, it is a report about what has already been done. It has taken place. It's historical. It's an event. The gospel is the good news, the life-changing, history-making good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to give us religious advice about what you should do. He came to give us the gospel about what he has already done. Come on, somebody. There's a difference. And Jesus sees some people that have good intentions and they're well-meaning. But they're sort of checking Jesus out. The word's gotten out. It's being spread abroad all over the place. Crowds are coming. Jesus cannot show up anywhere he goes without folks gathering there with expectant hearts. And when they show up with faith and expectation, it's amazing what the word of Jesus can do. Blind eyes are open. Deaf ears are unstopped. Dead people get up out of the grave. Testimony after testimony of the messes that people are in become a message when Jesus gets involved with their lives. Today I've come to tell you that gospel hasn't changed 2,000 years later. Jesus can take your mess and he can make it into a message. Come on, somebody. I want to talk to you this morning seven things very, very quickly. Number one is the power of tradition. Tradition was used in verse 3 and verse 5. He was talking about the tradition of the elders. Tradition is very powerful. It's the Greek word paradosis. It, it, it literally means to deliver or to hand down. It's the idea of traditions that have been given orally from grandma to daughter, from daughter to granddaughter, from granddaughter to the next generation, on and on and on and on. Traditions are things that we have come to believe that sometimes may or may not have biblical substantiation. Let me just give you a little quick true-false quiz this morning because I think that there are probably some traditional ideas in our minds and our thinking about what the Bible might or might not say. And so today I want to give you this true-false quiz. If you have a piece of paper, you can take it down. I believe there are five here, and you can put a T or an F, just number it one through five. Or if you just want to keep up with it in your mind, I believe that you can keep up with which one of these are true, which one of these are false. Okay, this is, this is it. Here we go. The Bible says, A, the forbidden fruit. We're talking about Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. The forbidden fruit was an apple. True or false? Okay, I'm hearing all kinds of answers. The forbidden fruit was an apple. Okay, true or false? Think about it. Sort of log your own personal answer, what you think it is. Next one, B. The Bible says God helps those who help themselves. True or false? Okay, think about it a moment. Is it in the scripture? All right, C. Next one. There was a little drummer boy at the birth of Christ. True or false? Okay, next one, D, money is the root of all evil. Is that what the Bible says? True or false? Okay, finally, one more, cleanliness, the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. True or false? Okay, I'm hearing a little bit of everything. Let me go ahead and just tell you right now, all five of these are false. All five of these are false. Let's go back through them. If you would, media guy, help me out. Let's go back to the very first one. The forbidden fruit was an apple. It doesn't say. It was a tree in the midst of the garden. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Legend has given us the red apple. There is nothing sinful about your red apple. Enjoy it. Okay? Any more than the Holy Ghost is a dove. 
The scripture says, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit lighted like a dove. So many times we've got people painting Jesus being baptized in a dove, a bird landing on his head. That's not what it said. It says the Holy Spirit came down, and literally there was something there, but it was like a dove lit on Jesus, and we take away from that, and it's become a tradition. So we don't know. We don't know what the fruit was, and it wasn't because it was a certain kind of fruit that was poisonous. It was the act of disobedience that brought the curse. Okay, next one. God helps those who help themselves. False. That is not in the Bible. It's from ancient Greek literature. It was made, it was made popular by Benjamin Franklin who included it in his Poor Richard's Almanac. God helps those who help themselves. Now, there's some common sense to this. You can't just sit there and wait for your family or the government or for God to zip open the heavens and to pour down your provision. You need to get up and, as they sang in the country song, get a job and you need to go to work, and you need to do something with your time. And it's amazing how when you start taking action that the blessing of God will come and find you out when you are faithful in little things. And that's great when it comes to diligence and perseverance and hard work, but somewhere along the line, this thing sort of overlays itself in our awareness of salvation, and we start to think, okay, I can work my way into God's favor. I can earn my salvation. And when the truth of the matter comes to light, I don't have the ability to help myself. I'm bankrupt. Better than that, I am dead in my trespasses and sins, and I've never seen a dead person able to do anything. I only move out of the deadness of my dead nature. It's when Christ regenerates me, I didn't have the ability to help myself. He helped me when I couldn't help myself. Okay? So that's a tradition, but it's not in the Word of God. Okay, now you still ought to work. Okay, there's a balance to some of these. Sometimes there's some common sense to these, some practicality to them. See, here we go. There was a little drummer boy at the birth of Christ. Is that true or false? False. Man, don't be messing up my Christmas carols. Don't go fooling with that. Now, I, I like you, Pastor Michael, but you better not touch Santa Claus. You better leave him alone. And I'm not preaching against any of that, but it's amazing how we get all of this collective consciousness about things and we have all this stacked up together and we build our manger scenes and, and we've got all this stuff going on that has nothing to do with the Scripture. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with putting up a tree and, and if you do Santa Claus at your house, that's fine. That's great. No problem with that. But so much of this stuff has been added in and people, there'd be the people that really think there was a little drummer boy. Oh, don't take that away from me. I like my pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. <laughs> nothing wrong with it. But just realize it's a tradition that is extra biblical. It's not in the Word. Okay? Number D, letter D. Money's the root of all evil. Is that true or false? The scripture says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. How many of you know you may not have two nickels to rub together, but if you have the love of money, you're still messed up. You be a millionaire and you may be able to operate with money appropriately and not let the love of money capture your heart if you're able to give when God instructs you to give. It's amazing how he can let a, a great huge conduit, a channel, so that more flows through you. And the more that flows through you, the greater that you can be blessed. But you know something? You can be stingy and have a love for money and have all kinds of evil that are, that's moving in your life. Money, it's not about dollars and signs. It's the love of it. And you don't have to have any of it to love it. You can be poor as Job's turkey, as granddad used to say. 
which I think was probably pretty po. Letter E, cleanliness is next to godliness. Man, I'm going to tell you, my granny told me this one when I was growing up, what the Bible says. Well, you know what? I was just kind of one of these kids that was curious. And long before I could Google it and find it, I got out concordances and books and I started looking and to try to find it. And I found out that that's, that phrase is not in the Bible. Nothing wrong with being clean. We should be clean. You should have order in your house. The, the kingdom of God is always about bringing order where there is disorder. It's about taking care of your stuff, being faithful in little things. It was first made popular in a message in the 1700s by a great preacher by the name of John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist movement, early Methodism. Wonderful man of God. And he was actually quoting from the Talmud where it lists all of these different kinds of good characteristics. And it said, talking about moving toward holiness. And he talks about abstemiousness that leads to cleanliness, that leads to godliness. And when you realize that the way that reads in the original uh, Hebrew, in the rabbinic writings, then the way it literally, cleanliness is sitting right next to as a word, next to godliness. But there's nowhere in the Bible where you find that. Okay, And this is basically what these Pharisees were, were preaching. Cleanliness is next to godliness. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being clean. You should want to be clean. Let me tell you, every Sunday after two services, when I've shaken probably more than a couple hundred hands during the, both services, and I go to lunch with my family, uh, usually I'll hit a couple of pumps of Germex on the way out the door, and I'll, if I don't do that, then I'll make sure I'll get up from the table and I'll say, hey, listen, I'll be right back. I've got to run to the restroom and wash off all the fellowship. I love everybody. I'll shake your hand. I'll hug your neck. I'll pat you on the back. You know, do a little whatever. You, anyway, it doesn't matter. But there, we've learned that a lot is past. You have a cold? I, don't, I do not. I think more of you, if you say, hey, listen, I've got a cold. I don't want to pass my germs. Okay? And so that you don't shake hands. Because we've learned that there is more that's passed by human contact. Even really more so than, than, you know, the sneeze that goes out into the air because it's contacted here and then I rub my nose or scratch my eyes and then guess what? I've just got what you've got. And so that's, it's a good thing to be clean. But the, the, the Pharisees are preaching something beyond that. They are legalists that basically are teaching that obedience brings acceptance. They're, they're, they're a bunch of very God-loving folks, law-honoring People, but they've gotten this kind of a mindset that has sort of motivated them to think that if you can do all of these things that you are acceptable to God. And, and their approach is very much part of what we see here in the Bible Belt South, a kind of a southern churchianity approach. If you sit up in church and you look right and you, you know, put on everything on the external and you're a, you're a card-carrying member of the right political party, Whichever one you think that is, because we've got Christians on both sides of the aisle. Come on, somebody help me this morning. I'm going to leave that alone. But for a few years, we've had the wrong-headed idea that, that you had to be one or, or the other parties to really be a real Christian. And so it's a kind of a, a pharisaical idea. And there's the difference between the Pharisees that are offering self-help for self-improvement. It's religion and it's advice. And Jesus comes up in the middle of all that stuff and he says, guys, you've got it all wrong. You are totally wrong about this. And basically, point number two, I want you to see, this is the ultimate yes, but granny did it this way idea. Because they're talking about the tradition of the elders. My granny did church like this. 
Granny would turn over in her grave if she visited this church and all this noise and racket. And my God, you've got that Asian kid over there in the drumming just, just, just wearing us out. And there are black people in this room. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just talking about maybe what some of our grannies might think. Granny loved Jesus, but granny lived in a different day. And I'm convinced that some of our grannies weren't as hard-nosed about traditions as we want to think they were. I heard a story recently about a great granny who had a wonderful recipe for pot roast and that her family loved and that all of her children and her grandchildren loved to go to granny's house on Sunday because nobody could cook pot roast the way granny could. And it was comfort food and it was an environment of love and warmth around granny's table and she made homemade biscuits and she made the most amazing pot roast that would melt in your mouth and make you want to slap your mama. It was just, mm, I mean, hallelujah. It was just, oh, it's the best thing you could put in your mouth on this side of heaven was granny's pot roast. And so mom learned how to make granny's pot roast and she did it just like granny did. Granny taught her that you know, when she would show her how to do it, she would cut the end off the roast and she would wash it and she would put it down into her little pot and she would pack the vegetables around it and she would pour these different spices on it that would give it that granny taste for her great recipe. And so mom learned how to cook it. And so granny passed and she went to glory to be with Jesus. And the whole idea of creating that kind of a Sunday come to, to mom's house for dinner was what we grew up with. And mom had an amazing roast and we all enjoyed it. And so mom goes to getting older and her children are growing up and her daughter wants to be able to do the same thing for her children and pass down this great good tradition. And so mom teaches daughter how to do and cook granny's roast. And, 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 and she actually is showing her, you know, that what granny showed her, you cut the end off the roast and, and you wash it and you put these herbs and spices on it and you pack the vegetables around it and, and you put it in the oven for 350 degrees and you pull it out in so much time and it's just, the house is just filled with the glorious aroma. In the story that I'm telling, Granny hasn't passed yet. She's actually visiting the granddaughter one Sunday, and, and she's seeing Sunday morning that the daughter is up before church, and the, the granddaughter had learned how to do what she was doing from Mom because Mom had passed it on to her, and she's standing there watching her granddaughter carry on the tradition. Granny's probably well up into her early 90s now, and granddaughter is, is, is trying to begin to build into her home that kind of warmth and acceptance and those sort of Sunday meals and the... The, the, the real just family atmosphere. And so she says, you know, Granny, I'm cooking your recipe. And so she's got her pot out there on the counter and she cuts the end off the roast and she puts it into this great big pot. And, and Granny says, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm just doing your recipe. Isn't this what you did? This is what Mom told me to do. She said, why would you cut the end off that roast? And, and, and the granddaughter says, well, that's what Mama said you had to do, that you're supposed to cut the end off the roast and put the, the, the vegetables all around it. And Granny said, wait a minute, I cut the end off my roast because I had a small pot. <laughs> Two generations and ideas passed down. No telling how many pounds of roast have been thrown away. <laughs> Granny was doing something that was practical and didn't do it legalistically. Or pharisaically, she just had a small pot. And so many times in church, this is the way Christians do. We're defending the way Granny did it. And a lot of times Granny was just doing something practical because the culture and the circumstances of life demanded that they do church that way. But guess what? We're a new generation with a much bigger pot. You put the whole roast in there.
The crazy thing is people split churches because they draw lines in the sand about cutting the end off the rose. You got to do it this way. You have to sing that. You have to have three songs. Skip the third verse, first, second, and fourth verse. I remember a few years ago we were down in what we called the shoebox. It was 620 West Broadway, and we had about 27 people packed into one of those little bitty tiny bays that we were first renting that was the, the beginning stages of Victory Fellowship at that time, before we became Victory Church of the Mid-South. And a sweet little 80-something-year-old woman from a, from a great heritage, she came from an Assembly of God background. We were singing all these new songs, and at the end of the service she said, Pastor Michael, I like your preaching, but those songs, somebody just made them up. And I kind of laughed, and I almost, I almost wanted to ask her, well, do you think Jesus handed down the words to just as I am, and I surrender all? <laughs> Somebody just made them up except 100 years ago. It was like a light went on for the very first time. I just, I just don't like all this new music. Somebody, somebody just made up those words. And people will split hairs over traditions. They don't realize that... Do you know that the very first generation where the pipe organ was introduced into the church, that generation fought it because they said it was the devil's instrument? And we've got 300 years of it being used now and people that will tell you that's the only way that you ought to worship God. Well, I can't believe that you go down to that church. First of all, it's in a mall. God forbid. What are they doing down there? And then they got this acrylic cage and the crazy guy and the drums and an idiot over there on a loud organ and then all the people jumping around the stage and what in the world is this stuff going on in this place? And I, you know what? It's all that contemporary Christian music. And what they don't realize is that 300 years ago when those hymns were written, that was the contemporary Christian of that day. They were writing hymns with the musical styles that were being played and sung in that generation. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? And people split hairs and they divide churches and go start a new one across town because of traditions that are not even in the Word of God. It's what Granny said. And now, you know, Granny is going, come on, guys, you need to ease up a little bit. She's on the corner of glory over there praying, going... Well, there's my idiot great-grandson over there fighting a war that's not even important to be fought over. Did you get your hands washed before you ate? And the disciples are picking and complaining. Jesus looks at them and he calls them a bunch of hypocrites. Hypocrites. Hypocrites are a show without substance. Hypocrites are a show without substance. Jesus says, this people, Isaiah well said of you, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In vain do you worship me. Because you teach for commandments the doctrines of men. You teach for doctrine, for teaching the commandments of men. I'm going to get that right. You've taken these ideas that men have promoted and you make them, you raise them up there with the level of the Word of God and because of your tradition you are making void, you are nullifying, you are making powerless the very Word of God in your life over the stuff that we argue about. Hypocrites are a show without substance. This is the Greek word right here I want you to see. It's hupokrites. They're the actual Greek characters to your right. Hupo is the same prefix that we have in English, hypo, like 
take the U out and put a Y in. Hypo means under. A hypodermic needle goes under your skin so you can get a shot or a vaccine. It's hypo, under dermic, dermis, skin, okay? As opposed to hyper, a child who is hyperactive is over the top. If you have hypertension, you have high blood pressure, okay? So this is not, this is not hypo, it's, 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 it's the, uh, I'm sorry, it's not hooper, it's hoopo, it's under, okay? Hoopo crites. Everybody say crites. We get our English word criteria, criterion, standard, requirement. A hypocrites is someone who is living under the standard that he is preaching. He is setting the standard by his words, but his heart and his actions are living underneath it. And that's a hypocrites. that's a hypocrite. Jesus says, you say the right things, but it's not in your heart. Really? You want to stop the ministry of blind eyes being opened, deaf ears being unstopped, the gospel being preached to the poor, transformed lives, and you're going to stop here and tell me you're upset because my disciples didn't wash their hands properly before they ate. Seriously? And even then the disciples have to ask the question, and Jesus turns around and says, Oh, come on, boys, I thought you had this. Are you just willfully stupid? And this is where we get it missed construed and messed up and misunderstood in our own lives as we start to think that these things that have been handed down to us, that some of them are good things. It's a good thing to teach your children to honor God and to pray before a meal. But that doesn't mean that if you miss one time, you're going to split hell wide open. Because if you start thinking that you have to pray for God to love you and accept you, then you're living a pharisaical legalistic. There's no relationship in that. I want to tell you, God is crazy about every one of you in this room this morning. There's nothing you can do good enough to earn or deserve His favor. His favor is yours because He sent His Son to die for you. That's the gospel. And in the middle of all of that, we've got a southern churchianity culture that is pervasive around us out here that tells you if you don't look a certain way, and you don't act a certain way in the way a Christian is supposed to act. And too many times people... Have, they, they can put on the act on the outside and their hearts are eaten up with sin on the inside. They think they're going to heaven because they've, they've got on this good act. It's a solid facade. It's a nice mask for church on Sunday. And then they live something entirely different Monday through Saturday. Well, you know, I've got to go to church and you know, sort of get my brownie points with God. God, help us. Religion will set all these things out there for you to do, but it will never give you a relationship with the Savior. Number four, tradition, is it good or bad? Nothing wrong with good tradition. Tradition, literally, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the crazy thing that scares me, that I can know all about the book, that I can tell you the Hebrew or the Greek word. I can, I can parse the verbs. I can, I can teach the concept. I can articulate the idea. But you know something? If I know the book, but I've not ever been introduced to the author of the book, then I'm in serious trouble. Tradition. Tradition can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. If it, if it makes me make the Word of God powerless, then it's a very, very, very bad thing. Too many times these days, folks who have a futuristic idea about prophecy books like Daniel and the book of Revelation are all wrapped up in their concern over getting the mark of the beast in their lives. 
If you look at a couple of chapters in the book of Revelation, it'll give you the mark of the beast. It's the number 666. Three sixes. Six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Six is that incompletion, not quite seven. Seven is the perfect number of God. Scripture talks about the seven spirits of God. All of these things that are marked by seven, seven days in the week. There's seven, seven tones in the scale. You, you go... Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, C, D, E, F, G, A, B. And then it comes back to C again. So you've got a whole new beginning with the eighth tone. Eight in Scripture is the number of new beginnings. There were eight souls in the ark, ark of Noah, that stepped out into a new earth to inherit it. Eight is the number of new beginnings. David was the eighth son who became the first real king of Israel. All over Scripture. You've got seven days in the week and eight starts the beginning of the new creation week. This is the coolest thing because there is a whole study in, in uh, the Greek that has to do with the mathematical equivalence of all of these words. When you take the word for tradition and you add up those values, like you take A, alpha, B, beta, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and you take the, the Greek characteristics, the Greek letters, and you, you subscribe 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 to them, you add up the value of this word tradition and it equals 666. So tradition can literally have on it the very mark of the beast itself. I don't think the mark of the beast is a barcode on your bread in the grocery store. I don't think it's a great big computer in Belgium that I had fear about when I was growing up in the 1970s because that's what Hal Lindsey was writing about in the late great planet Earth and this great big huge three-building computer. The crazy thing is now this tablet that I'm holding up here that I'm preaching from has more computer power than that supposed computer did in the 1970s. Those of you that are holding smartphones in your hand this morning have more computer capability than that big tube kind of computer supposedly had in the 1970s. This is not about technology. It's about the smell and the mark of Adam, the sin nature, the old nature of sin, the mark of the beast. Adam is a beast. Jesus Christ is a beauty. It's beauty and the beast. Beauty comes into my life and it tames this beast and it transforms me and turns me into who I'm supposed to be in Christ. And so now in Christ, my concern is not about taking some natural mark in the forehead or in the hand. But my concern should be in the next chapter where it talks about those that are marked with the mark of God in their forehead and in their hand. I don't believe that's a computer chip. To be marked with the mark of God in my forehead and in my hand means I now have the mind of Christ and I have the ministry of Jesus flowing out of my hand. I'm thinking the thoughts of God after Him. I'm doing the works of Jesus following Him because I'm walking in faith alongside Him. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying to you this morning? These guys keep repainting their prophecy charts and it's always going to get wrong because the whole system's messed up. What I'm telling you this morning is everybody's working, worried about this whole external thing and many times we're walking around already marked with the mark of the beast and don't even know it. We've got the scent and the smell of the Adamic nature on us because we're still thinking like our granddaddy Adam because he passed down his tradition to us from generation to generation to generation. Sin has been passed down. Time after time after time. Are you hearing me this morning? So tradition, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. It's handed down, it's passed down. Number five, I want you to see this real quickly. Three things and I'm finished. What is the source of all this pollution? Everybody, every religion on the planet agrees that there's something wrong, that we are messed up, we are jacked up. How can we fix it? How can I achieve nirvana? How can I get peace and nothingness in, as a Buddhist? And I'm not for one second telling you that all roads lead to the same place. 
Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except by me. Everything else is a lying vanity. Don't shout me down. Number five, what is the source of all this pollution? Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's everybody in here apart from Christ. We've got a messed up, jacked up, polluted, defiled, completely filled with rottenness kind of heart. And religion comes to us and says, wash the outside, scrub the pot, clean the pan, make sure the cover looks good, comb your hair, get it in place, sit up, look good, put a smile on your face, whether it's real or not. And you go through all those motions and those religious commandments that have been taught to you like they're the Word of God. And Jesus said, you guys, you totally miss it. You scrub the outside of the pot and the inside is filled with all kinds of rottenness. You paint, you paint the sepulchers inside or which the bones of the prophets which you've killed and you make this great whitewashed show but yet inside are filled with dead men's bones. You search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, but you'd fail to see that they talk about me and you won't come to me so you can have life. Jesus wasn't playing. This morning, number six, look at this. Jesus basically says, guys, this is the problem. He says, all of these things that come out of you, it's not what you eat, he says, for from within, verse 21, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. There is not one person sitting here under the sound of my voice that does not have spiritual congestive heart failure. It's packed. It's congested with all of this stuff that we just read because it's been passed down through our DNA. We've been marked with the mark of Adam. But Jesus comes to set us free. You want to know why? Seventh point, and I'm finished. Jesus Christ is the greatest, the most ultimate organ donor. He died to give you his heart. You're sitting here this morning. You know what? God has you on his heavenly transplant list. Your heart is congested with all kinds of evil. And spiritually, some of you sitting here are dead. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can, who can perceive it? Who can know it? Who can understand it? I, the Lord, test the hearts to, to give unto men according to the way that they live. You know what? As long as we all have that old heart from the old covenant, an old nature, a sin nature, nobody in the room has got a chance. But Jesus is the ultimate organ donor. His ID in heaven says organ donor. He died to give you His heart. A heart that is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. You don't think this is right? Look with me to this last scripture this morning and I'm finished with this message today. Ezekiel chapter 36. The Bible says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I don't do that now to earn His favor, but because His heart is on the inside of me, I have a whole new nature that wants to do the will of God. I want to do what God has commanded. Do you love me, Jesus said? Then keep my commandments.
First John says, this is how we know that we love Him if we keep His commandments. I can't do that in my own strength. I can't do that with congestive heart failure. Before Christ, my heart is deceitfully wicked. But once I've come to Him, He gives me a new heart and a new spirit and a new nature and a whole new life. And now I'm marked with the mark of God. I'm learning to think the thoughts of Christ and I'm getting the mark of God in my forehead and in my hand what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. No longer marked with the mark of beast, the mark of Adam, the mark of a man. But now I'm marked with the mark of Christ. You know what that mark begins with? It begins with one drop of His blood. One drop that's enough to save the whole world. Bow your heads with me, please, this morning.